Good morning, Proverbs class, Sunday, December 2nd, first Sunday in Advent, 2018. Thank you, Frank McGovern, for teaching our class last week. I trust you all had a great uh, week working since he encouraged you about your work. This morning, we are looking at relationships. Let's pray. We worship you, our God, as a God in perfect relationship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how you long to see mirrored on this earth the glory, something of the glory, of how you love and serve one another in the Godhead. So send your spirit to us that he might teach us, help us, instruct us, correct us, inform us, bring us light through your Word, Lord Jesus, that we might live in relationship in the way that brings you glory and honor. And of course, if that's the case, it'll be good for us. Thank you for this dear class. In Jesus' name, amen. The main image for life is the path of life. And... Early, early on in the study, we looked at what that was and the grammar of wisdom, and then we began looking at the different things along the path that can trip you up. Sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing. And now we want to look at relationships. So along the path of life, what kinds of people do you in fact meet? And when you get home, what's your relationship to your neighbors? That's the meta question we're looking at together. Let's use this. Uh, you'll be reading this tomorrow on December 3rd. Let's use these verses from Proverbs 3 to start our discussion. Who would read 27 to 35 for us? Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, Go and come again, tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with the man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Thank you. So there's an assumption underlying what the uh, sage is writing here, and that is relationships are inescapable. We're in this world, we're going to bump shoulders with each other unless you decide to move to Alaska and live off-grid and just be completely self-sufficient. Uh, we're going to have relationships with other people. The question is, what are they going to be like? What's going to be the influence on us? So notice there in A, we have different spheres of relational intimacy. So you've got people within your own house that you're closest to, your roommates, your children, your spouse, your parents. Then you've got the people that live right next to you, your neighbors. Then you've got your countrymen. And then you've got your rulers, civil or religious. 
And finally, there's the foreigner. So as you think about your relationship with these different kinds of people, what does the scripture say you, is your fundamental obligation to them? It's that you owe them something. Notice that uh, he, the writer says, do not withhold good. So wisdom asks the question, what is my obligation to my neighbor? I owe them something. And Romans actually answers the question what we owe them. Romans 13, 8. Somebody read that for us. <clears throat> owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So the, the idea is you leave your door in the morning a debtor. Because Jesus has loved you so greatly and blessed you so richly, you fundamentally see yourself as a debtor to other people. You owe them. And I think that's pretty counterintuitive because the way we're naturally wired is when we leave our door and go out in, into the sphere of where we live or say we come into church, we're innately thinking, what's in this for me? We see ourselves as the ones who are owed. We're really interacting with the world and how are you going to treat me? What are you going to do for me? Otherwise, why am I mad at bad drivers? I fundamentally think they owe me better driving than they're giving me. Right? I don't see myself as a debtor to them. And yet that's what the gospel does. It turns relationships upside down. You're a debtor to everyone else in your life, essentially. We'll see there might be an exception from Proverbs. You owe love to everyone in your sphere of influence. You're a debtor. Because of what Christ has done for you. And so the more you're aware of that in your heart, the more acutely you feel your need to give love, to pay the debt of love to your neighbor. Somebody read for us the verse there from Galatians 6, 9, and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household so I've got a general obligation to who? Everybody. To do what to them? Good. And I, within that sphere, there's a subset of people that are, I'm especially uh, obligated to do good to, and who are those? Within the household of faith. So it would be wrong to say, I only owe love to those within the church, right? That would be wrong. It would be truncated. It would be wrong to say, I only, I only owe love to those outside the church. Do good to all men while you have opportunity. Does that mean you're praying for opportunities? Probably. Lord, give me an opportunity. When you pray on the armor of God and you put on the, the gospel shoes, the preparation of the gospel of peace, that's a great time to say, Lord, lead me to people who need what you've given me. Lead me to opportunities to do good to people. So you put on a mindset of looking for opportunities to fulfill that love debt that you owe people. And notice the writer uh, Paul in Galatians assumes we're going to get tired of doing this. It's going to wear us down. Right? Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't lose heart. As you have opportunity, seize those opportunities. So what's wearing us down from doing good to other people? What's taking the, the, uh, the wind out of our sails, do you think? Maybe because some may not be appreciative. Okay. I don't know. Right? It's really hard to keep doing good to people who don't express appreciation. That's possible. 
Joe? So if I'm depending on myself and it's really all about me and I'm not praying for grace and strength from the Holy Spirit, eventually I'm going to get weary and give up. Maybe, uh, maybe not um, expecting, uh, you know, in other words, maybe they may not reciprocate right. in, in some way. Right. And of course, what did Jesus say about helping people who can't reciprocate? Anybody remember? Don't, he said, don't, don't throw parties for people who are going to invite you to their party next weekend. Throw parties for people who have nothing. Because that mirrors what? The gospel. God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. God loves his enemies. So that we we're, have this obligation to do good to people who don't necessarily have the ability to pay us back. Because we can't pay God back for our salvation. It's beautiful the way Jesus reasons it. Alice and I believe you wanted to say something. I'm just saying that, uh, at least in my case, I'll get distracted by other things. I might be intending to go to this friend, and then I get distracted by email or... <laughs> yeah, there you go. Other stuff. Lots of things that distract us. So here's a situation from my life. Uh, a few years into our church plant in Lynchburg, we were meeting in a school, and as the pastor, I'm, I'm going to walk in, I'm going to begin to see, is everything set up for worship and for Sunday school? So that's kind of on my mindset, right? It's important that we are set up, right? We have a good public face. And I remember this one morning walking in, seeing one of the deacons, not even saying hello or good morning, but just saying, hey, is such and such ready? Now, he's a big boy. He, he understood. He, there was no hard work on his part. But I was convicted that I treated him like an object of service to me and not like a human being. So finally, I, five minutes later, I went back. His, his name was Moose. And I said, Moose, I'm so sorry for the way I greeted you this morning. And he, he was fine. But right, I, what I owed him was not what I was thinking about what he owed the church in terms of service and setup rather than, good morning, how are you? So, all consumed with my agenda. So put yourself on a continuum, the, the, the debt continuum. Do you basically see yourself as someone who is owed? Or someone you see yourself as someone who owes? Where, where do you typically relate in your life? And obviously it's fluid. It can move back and forth depending on how you're feeling, what you're able to, able to get. But we need to, we need to be, we're naturally here. People owe me. And that's why we get angry so quickly and whatnot. So, wisdom asks the question, what is my obligation to my neighbor? The fundamental answer is, I owe them. C, he, uh, the writer goes on to say, from those to whom it is due. Don't withhold good from those to whom it is due. Does that imply there are those to whom it is not due? Possibly, yes. Or why put it that way? Don't withhold good from those to whom it is due. And that requires us to ask the, the question, the quality of our interaction with other people, are you fundamentally influencing them, or are they fundamentally influencing you? Again, another continuum, the influence continuum. Are you in a relationship to be an influence? 
Are you in, in, in certain relationships where you are being influenced? Okay? So you, you've had relationships, right? Then when you're around that person, you just feel like, I'm getting dragged down. Or my, my, my fleshly instincts are much more active being around this person. Maybe they're not a believer. They don't walk with Jesus. They have three different values in you. But they're a friend, and you want to spend time with them. When you're around them, you're allowing yourself to be more influenced by who they are than you influencing them by who you are. This battle is always going on in our relationship. So that's the question you want to ask. How are you influencing them? How are they influencing you? And it doesn't mean if, uh, if they're not a great influence on you that you cease the relationship. It means that you prepare yourself ahead of time for your, the time that you spend with them in the relationship or they'll be influencing you in a bad way. Every parent's fear is what? That their kids get into relationships with people who are a bad influence. And those are, there are bad influences. Some of us have kids who went way, way wide of the path of life because they wanted to be with their friends, they wanted to be liked by their friends, they wanted to be like their friends, and those friends didn't, weren't a good influence. And so the, their kids weren't prepared with the idea of how am I influencing them? How are they influencing me? One of the Christian questions Christian singles have is, should I date an unbeliever? What's, what's the underlying issue there? The power of the influence of that person's life. Well, I'm going to date them so I can share the gospel with them and see them converted. That sometimes happens. Anybody in the room that that happened to? You either were dated by a Christian and were converted by them, or you dated someone and they were converted because you are dating with that, anybody in the room? Let the record show no one in, in this room. But it does happen sometimes. Okay. And then he says, don't withhold good from the D when it is in your power to do it. When it's in your power to do it. What are the sorts of powers you possess to bless others? What kinds of things? What, under the category of the good that you owe them, when it's in your power to give it, what are the kinds of things that you have that can bring good to other people's lives? If somebody is, is hungry or, <clears throat> or, or needs... Uh, or needs a ride to a doctor's office. Transportation. Uh, transportation. Good. And if you're able to do it, then, then, you, then you, you do you it. Should. You give them food. Right. What else? Good. Transportation. Food. Well, the first thing that came to my head was time. Time. That is like, <laughs> 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 if you're willing to sacrifice the time to do any of the other things. Yes. That's a huge commodity, isn't it? And we all are given by God enough time in every day to do exactly what God wants us to do. And, and uh, we often weigh the time cost on us to, to do good to somebody else, don't we? We always wish it took less time than we, than we had. But um, that's, it's a huge, huge consideration time. What else do you have two of that people often benefit from? just to be friendly, just to speak to people. Okay. Well, neighbors, you know, we okay. get shut up in our houses. Okay. So opportunities just to talk out on the street. Good. Talk to people. Engage them with questions. 
How are you? What are you doing for Christmas? How's that sick aunt you told me about a couple weeks ago? Just ask people questions, get them talking. And when they talk to you, you have two of these that you want to use. <laughs> Ears. Listen to people. Some people are really lonely. And you can tell they don't spend a lot of time with other people because when they get with you, they use all the words they've been storing up that they haven't had a chance to share with anybody else. No, really, I get with certain people and I think this person is lonely because they don't have anybody to talk to because when they're with me, they just don't stop talking. And that's fine. I think that's something God's called me to use. He's given me two ears and one mouth. Use these twice as much as you use this. Really, I, I think that's true. Um, and a lot of people need, they just need to be listened to. What are some other things, the good that you have within your power to give people? Sort of like what Allison said, you should try to encourage them if they're down. Okay. A lot of people need encouragement okay. if they're going through a bad time. Good. You, you should assume people need encouragement. And if God has given you truths from his word, God has given you experiences to draw from, God has given you maybe some scripture that you read that day, be ready to encourage people. Listen and find ways to encourage them. Most people need encouragement. Good. What else do you have in your power to bring good to other people? The gospel, okay. The good news of Christ, good. What else? Money? Did we say money already? It might need some of your money. Food, housing, shelter. Food, housing, shelter. Um, your presence, just being present with somebody. Sometimes you're present, you don't need to say a lot, you're just with them. You're just with them. Pray for them. You know, you meet a stranger, and you don't know whether or not they're a Christian or not, but you can pray for them, can't you? Sure, you can pray. Most people, if you say, can I pray for you, most people will say yes. Very, very, very few people will say no. Most people will say yes. Even if they themselves don't believe in the power of prayer, or don't believe in God, they'll say yes, pray for me. Because they think, okay, well, there's a chance this might help me. You know? <laughs> So pray for people. Okay, there's, so there's a lot of uh, ways, uh, things in your power that you bring to pass that bring good to other people. E, don't say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I'll give it to you, when you have it with me. So what's being anticipated here? You walk out your door, you're talking to your neighbor over the hedge, and they ask for something. Time, a ride to borrow your lawnmower. They need 20 bucks for your electric bill. They need you to watch the... Whatever it is, they've asked you for help. This verse is anticipating what? Immediate action. What? I mean, they want immediate help. They need it now, and, and this verse is anticipating you saying, no. I don't want to do it. <laughs> but it says, don't do this. It anticipates our depravity. I'd rather not. <laughs> Okay, so what are the typical excuses we use? Right? That's, come on, that's what the verse is anticipating. Don't say, come back tomorrow. Right? I, which, is, which is really saying what? 
I hope somebody else is the solution to the problem, not me, because if we wait till tomorrow, maybe they'll start asking other neighbors and they won't meet, bother me with their need. That's what the verse is saying. That's in our hearts to act that way. Come on, the scriptures exegete our hearts. It shows us all the junk that's in there. So what are some of the excuses we use not to help? Or we think them. We might not say them, but we think them. What are some excuses? I'm too busy. I don't have time. That may be objectively true, in which case you might spend a fraction of time helping them find someone who does have time. I mean, it might be the case that in the list of your obligations at that moment, you are committed. You are committed. Is this a good commitment? You've said to your son, I'm taking you to the park, and we're going to walk around the lake and look at the ducks, and your neighbor needs you for something, is it, is it right to keep your commitment to your son versus your neighbor? It really is. Because otherwise, although it's important to teach your children, and I'm looking around the room, I don't know who this may be, but oh, yeah, throw it to you. Yes, it is Melissa. Uh, but to keep your promise to your kid is really important, lest, in the case of, say, a pastor or something, your kid's... And uh, you, you grow up kids who are resentful towards the church because the church always came first before them. It's not a good message. So we need wisdom to know when it's in our power to do it when we're supposed to do it. What are some other excuses? One is I don't have time. Joe? One of the things I used to think about was when uh, people, oh, people would come up to me and say, hey, you got anybody who's Well, you know, Because a drunk's going to go buy liquor with it, and that's not a good use of your money or the Lord's money. But, but what I'm saying is, it says in Scripture, to give, uh, if I have it, to give it. I leave it up to the Lord to influence the person. I can't do that. But uh, it doesn't say, do the Lord only if you think it's going to be a good thing. Give it if you have it. Yeah, but it's, so you give what's good. You give what's good, and it's not good for them to get another bottle of booze. Right, but I also, uh, you, you know, if they need shelter, I, I have a list of people that they can call to yeah. help them and things like that. So, so because I had all that, what what made me think that I was supposed to screen people? I, I, I just didn't go back to Okay, I'll just leave it alone. <laughs> well, the, you screen because you're asking the question, what's good for my neighbor? That, so you've got to stop and ask that. I mean, I've been in situations where I'm pretty sure the person asking me for money is a professional beggar because they're in a neighborhood, they're in a shopping center. I, I can't be sure, but you can kind of tell. Like there's this one, I'm driving to church on Easter morning one time in Texas, came to this major intersection, there's a lady there asking for help. It's usually the same story. My, I need diapers, my car's broken down, I'm from another city. You should, 
look, and I don't know exactly what's happened, but what you can say to that person is, look, I'll call the police and get you the help that you need. And then when they run, and they, F, they tell you to F off, you're probably dealing with a professional beggar. And I've had that happen to me. They just curse you off. So what, uh, what in your mind is the biblical indication that we exclude people who are professional that's a fair question, yeah. Um, it, 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 the, the answer is, I'm to be a steward of my um, treasures, and it's not good stewardship to feed the uh, appetite of a professional beggar. And I, I would encourage you to read um, Helping Without Hurting, which really goes through this whole challenge. Actually, I've read that yeah. Helping Without Hurting. A uh, good book, uh, one of our deacons says, helps with this challenge. Shirley? Well, I never have, I mean, this is the truth. I never have even a couple pennies in my purse. I never have any cash coins in my purse. So sometimes I'm better at this and I'm better, not so good at this. So don't think highly of me, anybody in here. But every now and then I'll just say, Lord, give, give me, I want to intentionally have my eyes open for what you want me to do. Um, but so give me wisdom. So if somebody's asking me, I'll say, well, if you're hungry, let's go into 7-Eleven and I'll buy you something on my credit card or my debit card, you know, or you know, get a sub or whatever's nearby. Good. Um, and I and then also not feeling like because there's so many people begging, there's so many people that I confront at every intersection I'm parked at. You know, to get somewhere, I don't feel like I have to do it for everyone. So I'm asking the Lord for discernment. Good. So you you work at a place where you see tons of beggars? Oh yeah. Oh wow. How many is that true for other other people? Most part. I mean, there's two or three. Like I I run into the same two or three people um, in College Park a lot when I'm walking from my house to campus. Okay. Um, And and I've done like surely. you know, I try to like, can I buy you a sandwich? Can I do this? Sometimes, and I have given cash sometimes because there's one guy individual that, or, or one guy who, um, he's just, he's trying to get into a senior housing thing, but he's like 251 on the list wow. here in College Park. And uh, he's disabled, he rides a tricycle, uh, construction worker is like 63. Wow. And so that guy, that guy, like, I mean, I prayed with him. Good. He's very uh, open to, you know. I don't, you know, I don't think I don't sense any, um, like I'm going to go by. You know, he, he's told me like, hey, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't do that. Great. Um, anyway. Good. Melissa. Oh. But um, with my kids in the car, we will often be stopped at intersections, and there will be people begging. Even knocking on windows. Yeah. And my kids ask a lot of questions. Yeah. So I've had to wrestle with this because my initial reaction is they're going to take the money and do something with it that they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Um, but then Joe's question about who do we exclude from our mercy and what we're giving comes into my mind. And what what am I showing my children by saying, well, they might be using this for for bad. So one thing that I started to do is keep bottles of water in the car Good. or closed snacks like granola bars or something. Good. So Wonderful. So I can get those things out. Um, so at least we're, we're showing mercy in that Did way. Did y'all get that? 
Melissa keeps bottles of water and little snacks, granola bars or something in the car to hand out. That's great. So we can ask our deacons to do a seminar for us and teach us about these things. Let's let's move on. These are good questions. I know it's kind of it's ten o'clock. Oh my goodness. So here's some of the excuses. There's nothing in it for me. I don't have time. It's inconvenient. I don't like you. <laughs> what if it's a neighbor you don't like? Or you're physically incapable, in which case, then you can't do it. So then you meet people along the path of life you should avoid. You should avoid. Because they will be at the And that's what the text says. So, for example, a man of violence. And the principle in store here, it's not explicitly stated, but it comes up in 1 Corinthians 15, and that is, bad company corrupts good morals. As a rule, there's a stronger influence of bad company on a good heart. As a rule, we just need to be incredibly vigilant for ourselves, for our, the sake of our hearts. I love the way Paul talks about the influence of the godly when he writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. You followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering. So Paul modeled all of those things before Timothy as he hands off the baton of his ministry to his younger protege. So we're told here that there's a temptation to envy. Don't envy certain types of people. What's the problem with envy? Tell me some of the things that when you're envying somebody else, maybe it's the rich, maybe it's the, the violent, the famous, the whatever. It's idolatry. Why is it idolatry, Allison? Because you're making something more Okay, you're making somebody's lifestyle or choices more important than God. Very good. You're, you're also saying that, that God didn't do for you what he did for somebody else. So you're good. sort of judging uh, God in that way. Good. It's a really an unbelief, isn't it? That God isn't meeting my needs sufficiently in this station of life in which I am. When Dennis and I were young and we'd drive to church and we'd, this, the, the same road home to church is would come down to this stop sign and ahead was this lovely sweeping lawn and a lovely house at the top of the hill. And every time we got there, I just lost it after that. Now look, I was 24 years old. There's no reason in the world I should have that. I just started working, right? No reason I should have that. But I was envious of the people who had that. I'm just confessing to you. You know, envy probably hasn't stopped in my heart. But you see yourself as poor when you're not poor, when you envy other people. And, and when you envy the, the wicked, you don't see their destiny. They're going to be in hell if they don't repent. Um, when you envy other people, you fail to see yourself as the debtor that owes them love. So when you envy people, in a sense you're saying, I want what you have rather than I can give you what I have. So you're cutting off the ability to love them. And I think as we've pointed out, when you're envying others, you've denied God's good providence. He's completely in control of your life and the circumstances of it. So we're told here not to envy the evil. Someone read that verse for us. Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their hearts divide violence, and their lips talk of trouble. The idea is you get sucked into that sphere of thinking and acting. Uh, not very far into chapter 1, the prologue of Proverbs, in verse 10, we meet the warning to the youth, 
not to run with these gangs because the gangs are going to make violence look fun. They're going to talk about their fellowship, the freedom, the money they're going to get, um, and the, the, the joy of, of making other people feel afraid. All the, This is gang violence is what this is. Uh, it comes up right in chapter 1. The adulteress, don't, uh, what, what, somebody read that verse for us from 5.8. So why the warning about proximity? What does proximity bring? Temptation. Desire. The longer you look, the more you want it. Food. Somebody read those two verses for us. Sorry, I said food, and I should have said fool. Thank you, Frank. Yes. Okay, again, who's influencing whom? Now, the glutton. Dory, read that for us. The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Do not be among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them like rags. So why the warning? It's not really complicated. Because it's temptation to be around them. Yeah. To do what they're doing. Yeah. And when you're in their presence and these are all your friends, for you to resist them, stand up against them, tell them that's wrong or say, I'm, I'm getting out of here, they're going to chide you, ostracize you, make fun of you, scorn you, hold you in derision. There's all, all kinds of things in play. How about these verses on our enemies? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to it, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. But these are hard verses because what's our natural inclination when our enemy falls? Hooray! What? What? Chris? Rejoice over this. Yes! And look, David does in the Psalms. David does in the Psalms. And um, who was happy when Bin Laden got killed? We all were because he got his just desserts. Um, so this is a tough one. Uh, it, it really arrests where our hearts naturally are. It seems to say in verse uh, 24, 17, that when God sees our delight in the downplay of our enemies, God sort of withdraws his judgment from our enemy. I don't quite understand that. Um, what about this idea of, of feeding your enemy when he's hungry and meeting his needs? You'll heap burning coals on his head. Again, the commentators aren't sure what that means. It may be some form of humiliation. Some form of humiliation. And that is, if you do good to your enemy and you're, well, it's, uh, I don't know. I'm maybe, maybe, you know, the Lord didn't mean somebody like Hitler or, or Ben Wadden. And enemies within your social setting. Right, yes. Yeah. Somebody that you know, yeah. possibly. We are, we are given the right to to um, wage war against our enemies as, as, a, as a nation, yeah, if, if to defend ourselves anyway. I, I, I have a question. 
Yes. Yes. So how does that uh, proverb go with being with sinners, like Jesus being with sinners? Yeah. And, I mean, because I, I struggle with that one because I I do tend to spend time with people. I don't know if they're drunkards, but I guess I consider them to be drunkards. People that are not going to the church, maybe not believers, and I spend time with them. Yes, and we're supposed to, right? By the example of Jesus, the teaching of Paul, and so so how do you balance this warning with doing exactly what the Lord wants us to do? Because if we're, how are unbelievers ever going to see the light of Christ if we're not friends with them, right? How do you balance these two, Dory? It's a good question. I think it goes back to what you said before. Are you going to be influencing them or are they influencing you? So that's, that's up there on the board there, you know. So, just to be sure, when we read, do not be around drunkards, we're not going into a judgmental mode where it's like, oh, I can't go to that party because they're drinking, or, you know, I shouldn't be there because they're doing, like, the, the Christian kind of self-righteousness mode. Yeah. Doesn't it take wisdom? There are probably certain parties that you want to say, definitely not where I can go. There are other places where you want to go. Be salt and light for Jesus. You're, you yourself aren't going to get drunk. But Jesus was accused of being a drunkard because he was at parties where there was a lot of drinking. But he was there as God, right? He was incarnating God. So it, it takes wisdom. And maybe don't go alone. Take a friend. Go with your spouse or whatever. And our kids, our kids, do we want them at drinking parties? Probably not, because by virtue of their youth and inexperience, lack of moral fortitude, that's not the place you want your kids hanging out until such time as they've gotten you know, into their lives where they've got the power to be more influencing than to be influenced. So it's a, it's a great question. I think it's a wisdom question. That's why, again, Proverbs are aphorisms. They're pithy statements that, as a rule, are the norm, but you can't necessarily absolutize. So I'm wondering if that is like be among, be not among is like take, taking part with them in it versus yeah. being there present but not doing what they do. Yeah. yeah. And the, but the principle's clear bad company corrupts good morals. So you have to be careful, you have to be on your guard, you have to know who's influencing whom. Um, then you see some of the other examples. And let's just move on towards the end. How, what do we have? Five minutes? Well, six or seven. Six or seven. Let's, let's jump ahead to G. Types of neighbors. It's interesting where um, the, the verse that we began with says, your, your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do you have that in your neighborhood? I mean, when was the last time you thought... The guy living next to me is going to come kill me in the middle of the night. I mean, most of us probably have neighbors that dwell trustingly beside us. And that's a good thing. That's a blessing. And what, what God is saying is, there's a relational collateral trust there you don't want to violate. They trust you. Act like a, a trustworthy neighbor. So we've got, um, we've got different types of neighbors. There are neighbors who are near, neighbors who are poor, friends, and those who are far. A couple of verses about the poor that are very important to hear. Who would read those for us? Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy. 
That's some good stuff. It's, it's just seeing with, with a Christocentric lenses that when you're generous to the poor, you're never more like God. Because the gospel is God making rich people out of poor sinners at the expense of the poverty of his son, who himself, in earthly terms, was dirt poor. Dirt poor. Had nowhere to lay his head. You have a house, you have an apartment, you have a tent. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. That's how dirt poor he was. And you're generous. When you insult the poor, you insult the maker because God had a son who was poor. Just very, very interesting. How about this idea of friends? Somebody read our friend verses for us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So there's wonderful teaching in Scripture about the nature of friendship, the importance of friendship, what friends do for us, how they help us. Just really good stuff. Have you experienced that, the sweetness of the counsel of a friend? The rebuke of a friend meant to help you, faithful wounds. Um, and then you've got neighbors who are far. And Jesus, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, defines your neighbor. That's what the, uh, the Pharisee asked the question. Who is my neighbor? And the answer is anyone in need. You meet along the road, anyone you need. Um, and then our, um, we have Jesus. He should have avoided us. He should have punished us as his enemies. Yet he treated us as the neighbor, foreigner in need, and took the curse in our place. Proverbs 18.24, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Earthly friends, and Jesus is that friend of sinners, who is both our friend and our older brother. We get it all in the Lord Jesus. All right, any last closing comments or thoughts? pray for us. Thank you for the privilege of having good relationships. Thank you for the calling to be good neighbors. We pray for the opportunity to get our neighbors into our homes, that they might see and hear and experience the love of Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you are that hospitable neighbor who, at the cost of his own safety and welfare, the cost of his own riches, became poor to make us rich in the gospel promises of love, forgiveness, acceptance, reconciliation, righteousness, purity, and cleansing. Thank you, friend of sinners. Thank you, our older brother, for what you've done for us. Now may we go celebrate it together with hearts full of joy and praising and bring glory to your precious name. In Jesus' name, amen.